0: The Emerging Student. Who is this student exactly? There's a lot of talk of decline in enrollment. However, there are marked increases in enrollment and in particular demographics. There's also the question of the international student. Who is the emerging international student? Is it the traditional affluent international student that is looking to study in American higher education? Or is there someone else who is emerging? These are the questions the FutureX podcast brings to the table today. Currently, there are 7 million college-aged Latinos in America today. And if you look at Latin America, there are 79 million. What about India? What about Asia? How about Africa? The decline in enrollment can be solved if we only looked at families worldwide who have been priced out, there is no doubt that the future of higher education is global. But there are a number of issues to discuss for the FutureX podcast. I'm Hector H. Lopez. Today, we invite back higher ed change maker President Santa Ono of the University of British Columbia, and Matt and I personally discuss these matters with him. President Ona, I I love the conversation that we're having, and I'd like to take a step back briefly into the conversation we were having as a result of the questions posed by Isabel. There are some statistics that are concerning to me. For example, the fact that there is a decline in enrollment since at least 2015, if we're talking about the last 20 years. Uh, With The National Student Clearinghouse in the U.S. puts us at about 19.2 million students in uh, 2015, and then... In 2019, prior to COVID 19, we declined to 17.5 million. That is a drop of, of a significant drop of two million. Then we fast forward a little bit, and we start looking into the demographics as to wh- who was declining and who was increasing. And the only real demographics that were increasing in that time, at least in the United States, was the Latino community, the U.S. Latino community in particular. They posted a. a an incredible doubling of enrollment during that same timeline where every other demographic was declining. There are currently 7 million Latinos in the United States. There are over 79 million in Latin America that are college-aged today. My concern is that I see from my perspective working with Latin America and the United States higher education institutions is that it's almost like we're missing the mark on who the new emerging student is. Largely joining a system that was not designed for them um that did not have their needs in mind, and in particular, we talked about affordability during uh, a few questions ago and and those to me are are concerns because I see the fact that seven million college age Latinos in the u s and seventy nine million college age Latinos in Latin America could certainly present a, a doubling or tripling of enrollment into the future, but no one's catering to that. And one of the primary concerns is that people within the United States, particularly in the Latino community, they're not readily going to be able to afford $30,000 a year, much less the projected $80,000, $90,000 sticker that's emerging in institutions like University of Chicago. Um, And then you go to Latin America and many institutions, four-year institutions down in Latin America are providing educations at about $3,000 a year or $5,000 a year. And so it presents these incredible hurdles of bringing you know the higher education as we know it in the United States to global levels with these with these huge roadblocks and and also misunderstandings of of the emerging student. What are your thoughts on this future and and how do you think we proceed from here in, in making it a little bit more global and a little bit more accessible?
1: Well, Hector, that's a great question, and um, you know you're looking at uh, the president of a university where uh, in, in certain programs, the tuition is $7,000 Canadian a year. So it's about 5000 and change a year to attend UBC, which is ranked in the top 35 universities in the world uh, in things such as U.S. News and World Report and Times Higher Education. Uh, so you compare that to um, some public universities in the U.S. that might be significantly lower ranked, um, and uh, that will cost $40,000 U.S. dollars a year. Um, not to mention my alma mater that you point out, University of Chicago, which is even, even more expensive. Now, I should say that that's, that's the sticker price, as you know, at these institutions and especially many of the private institutions have, um, programs such as the one that I helped roll out at Emory University, uh, which was called the Emory Advantage program, which had a no loan component for individuals under a certain uh, family income. So, um. You know, a number of private institutions in the U.S., including University of Chicago with their Odyssey Scholar, uh, do have robust programs because they are pretty well endowed uh, to uh, meet uh, all demonstrated uh, unmet need uh, of, of students. So, so uh, But th- those are the lucky ones, and there are only a couple of dozen uh, universities that can, can come close to meeting all uh, demonstrated need. Um, so, uh, so there is a problem at other institutions that don't have those resources. Absolutely, and uh, the sticker price of an education at a flagship, uh, uh, a major American university is very high, and that's something that we could have predicted. Um, and it's usually coupled to a significant decay in state support of of those universities, uh, where they used to provide up to two thirds of the operating grant for those institutions, and they dropped into the single digits. And so, um, just to survive. Um, what those public universities have had to do is to increase tuition um, because they have to somehow uh, maintain uh, the faculty and uh, the campuses that were created. So, to answer your question, there are two parts to it. In terms of the economics of it, uh, what's happened, the difference in Canada and in BC, especially, is that we're very fortunate to have a provincial government that has been comparatively much more supportive of UBC and uh, institutions, public institutions in this province than uh, other uh, many states in 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 the U.S. Uh, we um, get about two-thirds of our funding from federal and provincial uh, operating grants in support of our research. Uh, and so um, the proportion of the annual budget at UBC that comes from tuition is comparatively much less than in a public uh, flagship university in the U.S. So um, to answer your question... To get at affordability uh, in many of these very expensive American public universities, there has to be an alternate alternate source of funding. Uh, either um, state support of instruction has to go up, uh, or uh, there needs to be a considerable increase in in philanthropic support of, of of the institution. and And so that's the first part of the question. The second part has to do with it: uh, how to support the students that arrive and find. Uh, systems and programs that weren't designed for them. You're absolutely right. Um, that's something that I've seen over decades.
2: There was one topic that we talked about of the tension between China and the U.S. and higher ed and the things that are happening. I would love for your, your perspective on it. You spoke about it a
1: little bit. Well, I just want to preface the question by saying I think the tension between China and the U.S. or China and Canada uh, isn't uh, primarily at the university level. It, it's really more at the governmental level. And I should also s- start by saying that um, there are reasons uh, for uh, the mistrust that exists right now. Uh, it's re- it's really based upon concerns about intellectual property, about security, um, and and so that's really the root cause of it. So I wouldn't say it's 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 at the university level. It manifests on a university campus for uh, for a, a number of reasons. So that there, there are a large number of international students at both uh, uh, U.S. and Canadian institutions uh, from China. There's a rich history of partnership uh, between great universities in China and North American institutions. Uh, I think that uh, we've got to figure out a way uh, to um, really uh, live up to our responsibility to the federal governments in both countries to ensure security, uh, because uh, It is a fact that um, that's something that we have to be mindful of, not only intellectual property, but also cybersecurity in general. So we do have, as academic institutions, research institutions, a responsibility to our host countries to ensure uh, that we are protecting that. But we should not lose uh, the rich history of uh, collaboration and uh, the rich contributions to the educational experience of study abroad. And uh, student student mobility um, that um, have benefited uh, students on, on on both sides of the Pacific Ocean for for generations. Uh, I think that the world becomes a less rich place if uh, we retreat into our nations and and don't work to 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 develop programs where we collaborate. Uh, the world becomes less secure in that kind of a situation. And so I hope that uh through international networks that I'm involved in such as the uh Association of Pacific Rim Universities the APRU I hope that uh, we will identify uh areas and projects of common uh purpose uh, that we come together as we must to address uh the challenges of 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 climate change that we come together uh to find those areas that we can work together.
2: I want to first say thanks for joining us. Um any last words
1: Well, thank you very much. I've been very impressed, uh, Matt and Isabel and Hector and Deborah, and the questions that you posed. Uh, They're very important questions. And uh, I I like this uh, conversation uh, with you and and the audience so much that I would uh, be very pleased to come back. I I also want to say to those who are listening, and I know this is going to be distributed after this live uh, conversation, uh, that if if you have any follow-up questions that you couldn't ask me, I'm very easy to reach. Um, I have quite the presence on social media, on Instagram and on Twitter. A lot of people will direct message me. Thank you for being part of this conversation. And I look forward to hopefully interacting with you more in the future.
2: Thanks so much. Like I said, I'm really grateful. And yes, we will definitely have you on. The community here is strong. And that's why I wanted to bring you into the community so that they got to recognize who you are. President Ono was born in Vancouver, a graduate of University of Chicago with a a bachelor's. He did get his Ph.D. from McGill University. He is a president of a Canadian school, but he was also a president of a U.S. school. So he brings this amazing perspective from both the U.S. as well as, as Canada. He was the 28th president of University of Cincinnati, and today he is the 15th president of University of British Columbia.
1: All the best. Bye-bye, everybody.
0: This episode was recorded live on Clubhouse. Check us out at the Future X Tribe. It was produced by the FutureX X Tribe, Beyond Academics, and The Next Global Organization, Executive Director and Chief Moderator, Matt Alex, edited by BNX Media. I'm Hector H. Lopez. We'll see you next time as we continue our discussions with the higher ed changemakers on the FutureX Podcast.